So some announcements. We have about 50 very loyal listeners. But what we lack in number, we make up for in potency. So the 50 are very potent. They're mighty. I like to call them the mighty 50. And recently, we got some new reviews. Right, Paul? That's right. We got one from Justin, the Machine Osborne, and DL1011. Shoutouts to you guys. Thank you. And if you know other people who will be interested in the topics that we cover, please spread the word. This is how we're going to be able to grow our audience and get to 51 loyal followers. Mighty 51. And eventually, if we get a big enough audience, we could start live streaming and posting videos and just more options. Hopefully. That's the goal. So I don't want to beg, but please, 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 please spread the word. There Surely there must be other people who are into the same kind of weird shit we are. Leftist MMA intellectualism, right? They're just in hiding, but they'll soon come out. This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. So UFC 231, the main event being Max Holloway versus Brian Ortega. And the co-main event was Valentina Shevchenko versus Joanna Jonjacek. Before we go into the breakdowns of the two main events, let's first talk about my favorite fight of the night, which was Diago Santos versus Jimmy Manoa. It wasn't a very long fight. And I'm not bringing it up because I want to break it down. I'm just bringing it up. Because if you guys haven't seen this fight, because it was the first fight of the pay-per-view show, you might have missed it. Find the highlights. Find it somewhere on YouTube because it was an incredible fight. And the thing about Diego Santos is he's just an action fighter. And in my opinion, he's the most exciting fighter in the UFC. He used to fight 185 and now he fights 205. I think this was his fifth fight of the year. And the way he fights... It's so blood and guts. He's not going to have a long career. So we got to enjoy him while we still can. I think this is also his second fight at light heavyweight. He's moving up, obviously, from middleweight, where he's had a good career, but he's always alternated between losses and wins. But he has the most amount of knockouts in middleweight history also. It's one of those things where maybe he just didn't like the weight cuts anymore. He is a huge middleweight. And maybe he knows the way he fights. He can't have a long career. So it's important for him to fight as many times as he can. And it's easier to take fights, especially on short notice, if you don't have a crazy weight cut. And he still looked massive for 205. I think in 2018, like you mentioned, he recently had that victory over Anthony Smith, who also moved up from middleweight to heavyweight. Yeah, so fighters are getting smarter about the weight cuts. But poor Jimmy Manoa. He's one of those guys who's blessed with incredible power in his hands, but in a weird combination where his chin isn't nearly as strong as his punch. Diego Santos has a pretty good chin, 
Whereas Jimmy Manoa, most of his losses, I think he was knocked out. So either he knocks you out or he gets knocked out. So he's one of those guys like Andre Arlovsky. Heavy hands, but glass chin. I think his last few fights, he got knocked out by Vulcan. He lost a decision to John Blackowitz. Black, I'm not even going to pronounce his name correctly. And now to Thiago Santos. And previous to that, he lost to Anthony Johnson and Gustafson, like you mentioned, both by KOs. But it's unfortunate that you have a gift that always goes better in tandem. Heavy punches, you would think evolution would make it so that that always comes with an iron chin. But a lot of times, it only comes one or the other. Some people have an iron chin and they can't hit hard. Or some people hit really hard but have a glass chin. And then there's some rare individuals like Chuck Liddell or Rampage Jackson where they were blessed with both. But Manoa isn't one of them. So he's another exciting guy to watch just because you know somebody's going to get knocked out and it's 50-50 that it might be him. Jeez, what terrible odds. So the matchmakers for this, when you put Santos and Manoa together, you knew it was going to be good. I guess there's a reason why they kicked off the card. You got one guy who's blood and guts and has a pretty good chin and heavy, heavy hands. And you got another guy who's heavy, heavy hands and not so good chin. This wasn't like a striking clinic, but you got what you expected. A good scrap and the guy with the worst chin got knocked out at the end. So let's move on to the co-made event. Valentina versus Joanna. Paul, what were some of the things you liked seeing from both fighters? So one of the things that I always liked about Valentina is that she is a phenomenal counter striker and she doesn't have a lot of tells. So you can see that when she's standing in front of Joanna, there's not a lot for Joanna to read. So Joanna also does her best when she's in counter striking mode. You saw that in her strawweight fights when she had aggressive grapplers try to come at her. So she looked phenomenal being able to move, punch and just get out of the way slightly. Not to mention that when she does hit you, she hits you not just with one or two. She hits you with multiple shots. But when she's forced to be the aggressor, she looks less good. You saw that with Rose when Rose was able to faint constantly and had Joanna just punching at air. So when Valentina fought Joanna, she did the same thing as Rose did, but from a kickboxing range and with less tells. And she wanted Joanna to move in and say, well, let's see what you got. And Joanna didn't exactly back down from that challenge. So she threw multiple jabs, straight rights and kicks. And Valentina would either move just out of the way or counter it and block because she knew, okay, this is what you're going to do. So she was getting her rhythm and timing down. And you saw that early on when she would time her kicks and hit Joanna clean. I would say that this Joanna at 125, because she wasn't so depleted, was better than the Joanna that fought Rose the second time. She looked way better gas tank, stronger, faster. She just looked better in every way. And even strategy and technique-wise, she looked much better. So this version of Joanna, I could see beating Rose in a rematch. But Rose, first of all, is too small to fight 125. And secondly, this improved version of Joanna is still not good enough to beat Valentina. Valentina is on another level. She's too big to fight Rose, but just skill for skill, I would take Valentina against Rose because Valentina is like the Terminator. 
And she was beating everybody up other than Amanda Nunez at 135. And she was tiny at 135. And here she looks perfectly sized. She doesn't look depleted and she looks ripped. And it's arguable that she didn't really lose a second fight to Amanda. It was a very close fight. And the first time they fought, when they went to unanimous decision, Valentina was coming around and Amanda looked gas. So it's one of those things where if she could take Amanda's strikes and the only thing that counted against her was her lack of aggressiveness due to her counter-striking nature, it's going to put a lot of the other women's flyweights on notice. And important to note, Valentina came in lighter than Joanna. Valentina came in at 123 and Joanna came in at 124. This tells me that this wasn't that big of a weight cut for Valentina, which is even more impressive what she did at 135. Yeah, because not only does she have good striking acumen, she was able to sub Julia Pena when they were fighting and the fight hit the ground. So it's one of those things where when you fight Valentina, there's no real safe place for you to be in the fight. You're kind of always having to either be aggressive and risk getting counterstruck or take it to the ground where you're going to have to defend multiple submission attempts. And even for being smaller at 135, it never seemed like she gave up a strength advantage. She was smaller than Holly. She was smaller than Pena. She was smaller than Nunez, but she didn't seem weaker. She had more power in a smaller package. And one of the things I like about Valentina a lot is the way she trains. First of all, if you ever watch any of her training stuff, her coach and her team is so good at not letting you see any of her real training. They always have some bullshit where they're in the woods and they're just like, shadow boxing. So that tells me that the coach is very paranoid about anybody seeing their real camp and what their real training is like. Secondly, she never has her camp in the same place. And in fact, she has multiple locations for each camp. So she might train out of three different places for one camp. And I think one of the reasons is economic reasons, meaning if you have a super camp or the boxing model, which we're both for, we think everybody should do it. But Valentina has figured out another way to do it, which is to just go to different academies or MMA schools. And a lot of times they're smaller places. They're so excited to have her. Instead of her having a super camp where she has to pay sparring partners or fly them in, everywhere she goes, because she's a celebrity and she's a bigger name, people are so happy to spar with her and they'll just do it for free. So she gets to spar with like 50 different people in a course of a camp. Maybe they're not all the best. But they all take it as a privilege to spar against her. So she just goes to school to school and spars all their pro fighters. And that also gives her rounds with every different style imaginable. So her style is road tested. And the other thing that does is forces her to constantly be learning. Also her coach. How are they able to know every aspect of MMA when she's only had the same coach? And her coach is a wrestling coach slash kickboxing coach slash jujitsu coach. It's not possible to know everything to a expert level, but I think they're like learning sponges. Every school they go to and every different academy they go to, they're learning stuff together. Kind of like what Faraz used to do with GSP. Wherever GSP used to go to get extra training, Faraz would go with him to learn also so that Faraz can learn those techniques and bring it back and use them to help train GSP better and 
the other coaches. So when GSP came to California and learned different type of balance and physical therapy type training, like with the Marinovich system, Faraz was there learning all of that. And then when GSP went to wildcard, Faraz was also there learning everything he could about boxing. And when they went to the Canadian wrestling team, Faraz was also there. And I think that's also what Valentina and her coach are doing. They're going to all these different places and learning what that school has to offer. And what I've also heard then is they strategically pick these schools. Their manager picks these schools ahead of time because these schools might be good at something that Valentina needs. That's true. And it's one of those things where back in the day, she mentioned that she got a lot of her wrestling training done in Peru. And I didn't even know that Peru had such a strong wrestling program. The last person I remember from the UFC that came from Peru with the wrestling background was Tony D'Souza. And he was at one point a UFC fighter. He was one of BJ Penn's assistant coaches when he coached Ultimate Fighter Season 5. And you saw that in her post-fight when she thanked all the people and her fans in South America. And she did the whole thing in Spanish. And I thought, like, oh, she's not fronting. She actually spends time down there and she gets her training. And like you said, it's strategic part of her management when they go to different places that you normally might not have thought of. But you saw in this fight when she was able to ragdoll Joanna, which is something that Claudia did in both her fights with Joanna. But you just saw that strength and technique when she would just manhandle her. And to Joanna's credit, she would get up eventually, but she was just taking a lot of punishment. And she had to realize this girl is really fucking strong. I need to figure this out. And I don't even think Valentina does that much strength and conditioning. I think the type she does isn't like the kind other UFC fighters do where you see them with their strength and conditioning coach doing all those ropes and, you know, different types of plyo and whatever. I think everything she does is just on her own as part of martial arts conditioning, push-ups, squats, jumps. Because one of the drawbacks or maybe strengths of constantly moving, because they live out of an RV, they're constantly traveling, is recovery, physical therapy, massage to strength and conditioning. They got to do it all on their own because part of the nice thing about having a home base is then you go to your, the place you always go to for your recovery stuff and you go to your strength and conditioning coach. You could get sparring, you could get training, you could get martial arts training wherever you go. That's stuff you have to handle on your own. So I think she does her conditioning year round, just old school way, just martial arts conditioning way. And that's why I think she is so strong without bulking up because she just does body weight martial arts style conditioning. And she's just been doing it every day consistently for so long that it's like farmer strength. It's hard to catch up to. I think also doing it this quote unquote frugal way also kind of mimics the boxing model because they only pick schools that are small. I haven't seen her at like really big schools like a Greg Jackson or AKA. She goes to small schools that automatically makes her the star just as you would in a classic boxing camp where everything is wrapped around you because you're visiting and you're such a big star. Everybody caters to you. Everybody gives you special attention. Everybody's volunteering to help you. So she also has that going for her. And I wonder if she does it this frugal way because maybe she has to use a lot of her money and she sends it back to family. Maybe there's a lot of people in Kyrgyzstan that she has to take care of because a lot of situations I've seen like this especially with Russian fighters where they're training so frugally, they never end up that rich. And then you later find out that 
lot of that money went to management or all these different middlemen. And then also a lot of it went to their family members because a lot of times they come from very poor backgrounds. So maybe she was forced to do it like this and it works for her. I think in addition to everything you mentioned, one of the benefits of going to smaller schools is you're less likely to run into another high-level fighter that can gain intel. So it's one of those things, if you go to a big enough camp, there's going to be people who have trained with you who can note your style, note your habits, note things you like and don't like. We recently saw it with Donald Cerrone and Mike Perry, where all of Mike Perry's training partners knew exactly what Cowboy would do, what his habits are, what his strengths are. And Cowboy had to contend with that knowledge, knowing that his training partners have deep insight to it. With Valentina, it's one of those things where who has trained with her before? That show of hands is very limited. And because she's always been the big star at all these camps, they might feel a sense of loyalty. And they say, like, oh, I don't really want to help you. I know money is everything, but certain things, if you're driven by emotion more than anything. And Johanna's people might have had a hard time. But she also probably had a leg up because that camp also trained Amanda Nunez. So they prepared for Valentina twice. So that was also going to be an X factor, but no one's really hurt Valentina standing. And on the ground, she's so dangerous. And if Amanda couldn't knock him out, Joanna, who's not a power striker, wasn't going to do it. Yeah, part of, I think, they're moving around also is that secrecy. Like I said earlier, they don't let people film their real training. There's always some bullshit in the woods. So I think the coach is also very paranoid about people picking up stuff they're doing. So they don't like to go to the same place too often. And also, I think this allows her to spar a lot without getting hurt because she is such a star. Nobody's trying to hurt her. Everybody's kind of sparring her and training with her with respect. So she gets a lot of different bodies without getting injured because I rarely hear about her getting injured. Yeah, I don't remember the last story I heard was she had to pull out. Because a lot of those injuries happen in a big camp where all the fighters are very competitive against each other and they're always trying to get up to the top of the picking order. But if she's only there for a short time and she's a visitor and she's a star and everybody's going out of their way to make her feel welcome, there's no picking order. There's no sense of rivalry. You know, there is a bit of that. Here's a guest. I'm going to take him out sometimes. But injuries are more likely to happen with people you train all the time with because it has to be driven by that daily competitiveness. I want to outdo you. And these camps she's visiting, there isn't as much of that. So I think it's smart in a lot of ways. I don't think it's something you can mimic. I think only they can do it because it is a lifestyle thing. You have to be willing to be a nomad living out of a small-ass RV with your coach and maybe one training partner and your sister. You got to be used to that. And I think a lot of fighters aren't used to that third-world style of living. Would you say that if you don't want to do the Valentina model, you're kind of limited to either the Tony Ferguson model or the Tyron Woodley model. Tyron being the champion so he can fly in specialists and he can afford to have people come in and everything is around him. And with Tony Ferguson, the benefit being that because he structured everything around him and his team and he only brings in people he likes, they might not be the world-class type of guys that Tyron brings in, but he's still able to do a lot of things on his own. One of the things MMA has proven over and over again is 
You don't need world-class training partners for yourself to be world-class. There's so many guys who train with just the people they've always been training with, and they still become world-class. However, you still might need world-class coaches, right? So there's a lot of ways that people can do this. That's why Tony Ferguson's method can work. You don't benefit as much from high-level sparring as you do from high-level game planning and technique drilling. It's about your moveset and what you do correctly and how you fight. Those are the things the coaches can help you with. In a lot of ways, sparring is just bodies. You're just getting reps in. And what you're really learning is composure, learning to implement your plan. But if you get all your strategy and game planning from just sparring, you often end up being a very bad fighter with poor technique and poor fight IQ. But you could also do it like the way Cyborg does it. Christina Cyborg, when she has her camp, she trains with Jason Perillo at Ruka Gym, which is a private gym, and they fly in people. But outside of her camp, she just takes classes. She goes to Cabrinha's to take her jujitsu. She goes to another school that she found that is the best at wrestling to learn her wrestling. She goes to Perillo for her, her boxing. So instead of everybody coming to her, she lives in an area where there's a lot of good people. And then she just drives and takes classes and improves herself from all the best people around her because she knows they're so good and so well-regarded. They're not going to come to her all the time. So she goes to them. So that's the other method is you set yourself down in an area that has a lot of good coaches and you go to them. And then when you have your camp, then you bring in some people to you and you focus more around one of those coaches, which is what she does. But even in the middle of her camp, like she's in camp now and she still comes to Cobrinha's to take classes. She doesn't give up on the learning side of her training. She still goes and learns even during the middle of her camps. Whereas most camps, if you don't know, isn't around learning so much new techniques, but it's about sharpening what you already have and then getting you fight ready and game planning for that specific opponent. Learning is about long-term fixing your long-term holes and fixing and improving your long-term techniques. She still improves her long-term game, even in the time of specificity, which is supposed to be the camp where you're supposed to get dialed in on a very specific thing. You mentioned earlier that you don't need world-class training partners to be a world-class fighter. You see it with boxers such as Andre Ward who will spar with the Diaz brothers. And I think either Nate or Nick or probably both of them helped him prepare for Chad Dawson and he decimated Chad Dawson. And you also see it with guys like Miguel Cotto who used Aaron Pico as one of his training partners and the aforementioned Chris Cyborg who will take regular classes at Cobrinas in order to make sure her jujitsu stays sharp She's getting different looks and she's on that incremental improvement track where it's more about learning than it is, well, I just need to be only ready when a fight comes up and I'm in camp. So there's something to be said about that model where if you're constantly learning and getting different looks and feels from people, eventually it will add up to change. It's like compound interest. You might not get it. You might not get that return the day of, but over time, you're going to be unstoppable. So with that, Let's go back to Valentina and some of the things I like. First of all, she is so calm. She's one of the most calm and composed fighters in the UFC. And you compare that to the way Joanna comes in. She comes in high energy. 
I don't mean high energy like dancing, but more like she's amped up. She has to do all that trash talking to amp herself up. So she's more of a anxious fighter. Whereas Valentina is more about being clear-headed. And both systems work for both fighters. But Valentina's calmness allowed her to see everything Joanna was doing. So she allowed Joanna to lead, which I don't think Joanna had a problem with. I think that was actually her game plan because they'd already fought Valentina twice with Amanda Nunes. Except Joanna doesn't have the thing that Amanda Nunes used to beat her in decisions, which is aggressiveness plus takedowns plus ground control. Joanna only had one part of that, which was aggressive striking. But she never used aggressive striking to close the distance to clinch and take down. She used aggressive striking to get close enough, and then they clinched. And then that's when Valentina took over. So she wasn't biting on any of Joanna's feints. She actually moved very little. She would see everything coming. She would know what are the feints, what are real, and then she would just constantly counter her. Just lean back and then hit her with a combination. Sometimes use those combinations to head into clinch, or Joanna would sometimes get too close and they would clinch. And then from there, Valentina would get the takedown. Usually it was an upper body throw. Typically it was like steering wheel style where she tried to trip one way, that didn't work, and then she upper body threw the other direction. That was consistently the way that she took Joanna down. The other thing I noticed and was surprised by was the speed advantage. I was surprised that Valentina was so much quicker than Joanna. And when I say quick, I don't mean just bouncing around. Actually, Valentina was very still a lot of the fight, but when she moved, she was at 2x speed. She was so much faster than she was at 135. Like those back kicks were lightning quick. Or those counters, when they exchanged and they were both throwing in the pocket, I think Joanna would get hit three times before she could even throw a punch. And actually, that would disrupt her timing to even throw a punch because she's just getting hit. So she would just back out. I think it speaks volumes to Shevchenko's ability to read your movements as well as her knowledge of Joanna's style because they fought previously. It was 10 years ago. They're both kids. I get that. But it's also at that point when Joanna has activity where she would throw jabs and throw a feint and then throw a straight and then throw a kick. Valentina was waiting. It's like, that's not going to hurt me or I know what you're doing. You're baiting me to get closer. And she would wait on the return. So as soon as Joanna was done with her activity, Joanna got this false sense of security like, okay, I should be okay. Let me see. And then Valentina started attacking. So she never got comfortable and she was forced to react quicker than she had time to prepare a counter for. And Valentina is just a fast girl. So when you combine that with the fact that Joanna is less than prepared at that second, it exponentially increases the rate where she can hit. And I think the times when if you look at the stats, it looks closer than it actually was. It was because during times when they clinched, Joanna would start hitting to the body, which I thought Valentina could do a better job of defending. But then when they separated from the clinch breaks, Valentina always caught her clean with an elbow or a punch. And Joanna just had no answer where she knew, hey, after the first few clinch exchanges, you should know that Valentina would come over with strike. Yeah, I think Valentina outstruck her to the head like by 2x. And then I looked at the body count. I was like, when did Joanna land all those 
body punches and kicks to the stomach. And then you realize, oh, they also count those kind of pitter-pat knees that she will land in the clinch, just kind of throwing a, a high volume of them like Nick Diaz used to. Mm-hmm. And it didn't really affect Valentina. But the numbers don't tell the whole story, which is, yeah, even though she was landing knees, Valentina was still controlling the clinch. There's just no metric to measure that as well. And it was right before she would get thrown on her back. So, so it looks a lot better than it really was. Valentina looked like the Terminator. I don't know who could beat her at 125. It wasn't just that she knew what Joanna was going to do, but she just looked so dominant here against probably the best woman striker overall in MMA. Rose, probably a better boxer, but Joanna all all around, kickboxing-wise, was the best, and Valentina shut her down. I also feel like they counted strikes that she didn't land, meaning I think even when she landed and it hit Valentina's shoulder or Valentina blocked it with her forearms or so forth, they counted that as real strikes. But I think, really, Valentina was pretty much unscathed. She barely got touched. And, And she did it with really simple defenses. Her defense is mostly sliding back. And she barely slides back just to be out of the way, but she's still close enough to hit back. Then the other thing she does is she blocks the traditional way, double forearms, and she slips to the left. She doesn't even move her head both directions. She just slips to the left. And that's about it. And it's really simple. And it, and it worked to her advantage. There was only one time where Joanna was reading that slip to the left and Joanna caught her with a high kick. But she caught her as Valentina was walking forward. So she didn't catch her with the full brunt of her power. And even after that, Valentina was already hitting her. So even if you get through Valentina's defenses, she still has an iron head. (laughs) It's not like one of those things where she's a great striker, but weak chin like a Jimmy Manoa. She's like great striker and also a good chin. So even if the off chance you get past her defenses and you nail her, she's still going to be okay most of the time. And that's what we saw here. I mean, good on Joanna for reading that, that she only slipped to one direction, which is a problem that DC also has, Daniel Cormier. But Valentina is so far away that it's hard to capitalize. And also she barely slips. I wonder if that's leftover from her training with Rose. When Rose was fighting Joanna the second time, Valentina happened to go up and train with them at the same time. So I wonder if that training went both ways. And Valentina looked at some of the stuff Rose was doing. It's like, oh, that's cool. I like that. Maybe I'll just incorporate some of that into my fighting style. Well, you know my theory about her going to different schools and just learning for free, right? Well, I don't know if it's for free. They probably pay something for the camp. But yeah, I think also part of that is their learning. And I'm sure they take the classes too. Would you agree that Valentina won every round? Because that's how I had it. I don't know what the official scorecards were. But I had Valentina winning all five rounds. I'd say if I'm going to be charitable, I'd give Joanna the fourth because she was a little busier. And I think that might be the round where she caught him with the head kick. It might be the third or the fourth. But I'll be charitable and say, yeah, you know what? I'll give you a round. I think most of the judges had 49-46. Okay. I think it was unanimous 49-46. And I think once they said that, they were like, oh, yeah, they got to give it to Valentina. If they said 48-47, I might be like, hmm, I don't know. The judges are notorious for screwing things up. So, But once it was 49, I was like, oh no, Valentina has this. 
But I also feel like there's a bias with judging and commentating, where if one fighter is so dominant, then if the other fighter does a little bit better, you just want to give them the round or you want to say that they're doing a lot better than they did just in relative comparison to what happened before. Just like what happened with Brian Ortega versus Max Holloway, which we'll get into in a little bit. But every time he did something a little bit good, everybody was so excited. And I think that's the same thing with Joanna. Because in that same round, I wanted to give it to Joanna just because I felt so bad and she was doing okay. And then Valentina got the takedown and more control and beating her up with elbows. So it was hard to give Joanna the round in my mind just because Valentina closed it out so well. Not only that, but a lot of those strikes that did land are those short body punches that you're leaning against the fence and you just you can't generate a lot of power. It's not like when Josh Barnett had Frank Mir pinned against the cage and he was wailing on him. It was more like, like you said, pitter-patter, like, uh, 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 uh. that's five punches. That's sways the stats. That's like what David, who we had on previously, the modern martial artist, calls those shine punches where you're just... Getting in there, just trying to look good for the judges, you know, back and forth. But you're not going to break any ribs. You're just trying to get volume. And Joanna had a lot of volume. Not a lot of it landed, but she had a high striking output. Yeah, that spit shine combination that some boxers do and MMA guys do when they're against the cage and they want to look busy. It's the office equivalent of, let's say you click around when your boss walks by or then you push in some chairs and you shovel some papers like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing something, you know, don't, don't penalize me. I'm here. I'm working. You know, a lot of people will tell young MMA fighters to watch Mighty Mouse if they want to learn how to strike, look at his defensive skills, look at the stuff he's doing. But I actually say instead of watching Mighty Mouse, for striking at least, watch Valentina instead because Mighty Mouse is too advanced. He's just too complicated. He's a video game. Whereas Valentina is very simple, simple enough for up and coming fighters to learn and then just keep improving over time because she's an example of you don't need a lot of things to become a very effective fighter. You just need to do those things so well. Essentially, as far as punches, she has the right hook and the left straight. That's about it. As far as kicks, she has leg kicks and back kick. As far as defense, she slides back or slips to the left. But she does those things so damn well. And even if you look at footwork, you could look at TJ, Dillashaw, Dominic Cruz, or in boxing, Vasyl Lomachenko. But you look at Valentina, and she barely moves. It's minimal movement. But she's never off balance. Her stance is always wide enough and long enough. And she's always in a good angle and has good distance management. It's the thing that Miyamoto Musashi talked about in the Book of Five Rings where if you really understand footwork, you don't need to move that much. You just need to know the intent. What is the intent to get the better angle on your opponent? Then just move enough to do that. If they're doing most of the moving for you, if they do 90% of the movement, then you only have to finish off with the last 10% to get in the right angle, right? They came forward and did all this stuff. Then you just need to move a little bit to beat them in the angle. Musashi didn't say that, but that's my interpretation of it. Or... That's how I'm putting his very simple ideas into practical use. As a counterfighter, let them do the majority of the moving, and then you finish off the rest of that movement by just cutting an angle a little bit or cutting the distance or sliding back a little bit to turn the tables on them because that's what you need. You guys get closer. You just need to be in the better position to hit from that point. And if that other person is cutting the distance for you, then just do a little bit 
to win that exchange. I would add a caveat to that saying that your coaches know what kind of fighter you can develop to, what your natural strengths are and what your weaknesses are. So from beginner to intermediate, Valentin is an excellent person to follow. But not only that, but if your style is based around counter-striking, she is the person you should try to mimic because a lot of principles that she uses will work on day one as it does at the championship level. Have good footwork, know to read the opponents, know when to either bite down and swing hard or know that it's a feint and you're not in any real danger. And if you're a southpaw, if you're left-handed, maybe you didn't know this, but the preferred style should be counter-striking. Southpaws tend to be counter-strikers because that's what works better for southpaws. Now, you can be somebody who takes the lead, but do it knowing that what's preferable is counter-striking. Don't do it because you don't know what the fundamentals are, because that means that you understand what the dangers are when you're leading. Don't just do it because that's just what you think is supposed to happen, because then you're closing your own distance. As a southpaw, you have the natural advantage where you're so far away from their power hand. If you lead, you're throwing that advantage away. Then what's the point of being a southpaw if you're not going to utilize any of those advantages? And so Valentina being a southpaw, and I don't know if she's a southpaw where she has to right wood her left hand, but her stance is southpaw. And she does everything textbook what a southpaw fighter should do. Counter-strike, minimal movement, let them close the distance to your power hand, and then you make them pay. It's like we talked about earlier with David from The Modern Martial Artist, where people who come from traditional martial arts always start with their strong hand forward. So in Valentina's case, I know she came up with traditional martial arts or traditional fighting, where she might have learned to put her strong hand forward, which would have led to her counter-striking style. And even with people like the TJ Dillashaw, Dominic Cruz, and Max Holloway, we saw that when they returned fire in the counter-striking stance, they would switch to southpaw mid-strike and then they're in a perfect position to counter you. Even if they start off orthodox and then they kind of jab and prod and then they wait for you to return fire and they're in southpaw and then boom, you're like, whoa, that wasn't there before. And actually, going back to stuff that David was talking about, and if you don't know what we're talking about, listen to episode 17 where David came on as a guest from the Modern Martial Artist YouTube. But on there, he was talking about where... We might have come to a point in MMA where if you're a single style fighter who designs their game to their strongest point, the time of being able to fight at the highest level might now be over. And we saw that with Joanna, where she designs her whole game to defend the takedowns and just keep it striking. Whereas Valentina is actually all around an MMA fighter and a better striker than Joanna. So Joanna didn't have anything to finish off her aggressive fighting. You don't have to win on every exchange when you're the aggressor because judges are already giving you points just for being aggressive. But coming forward, you're closing distance. When you close distance, you're right there for takedown range. To really take advantage of leading, you have to incorporate the takedowns. And she doesn't do that. She's hit her ceiling with a single style. She gets to the top. And she was the champion, but now with somebody like Rose, who's complete, she can't beat Rose. And now against Valentina, Valentina, who's complete, she can't beat Valentina. And we saw that with people like Darren Till 
and Wonder Boy. They got to the top of the mountain until they fought good wrestle boxers and they hit their ceiling. And it doesn't help that Valentina's style of takedown is completely different than what Joanna is used to from the most aggressive grappler she fought, which was Claudia. And Claudia used a lot of aggressive double legs, single legs, where she would try to trip him. And Joanna's style is perfectly built for it, like that Chuck Liddell where her hands are slightly lower so she could defend it. With Valentina, she said, that's fine. I'm not going to go for your legs anyways. I'm just going to grab a clinch, try to muscle you in, and then boom, there's a throw. Nobody took Joanna down as easily as Valentina. And I think, to your point, it's also because Valentina used a different takedown attempt than most of Joanna's opponents. She couldn't sprawl against these things. She had to beat her in the clinch. And Valentina is just better at the clinch. Not only was Valentina stronger, but she just understood the clinch better. I think because Valentina also has a judo background on top of wrestling, on top of Muay Thai trips. So you look at the champions now, Holloway to Valentina to Woodley, DC. You have all these guys who are complete MMA fighters. You don't see the Wonder Boys. You don't see the Damian Maez. You don't see Joanna anymore. You have to be able to do everything at the highest level not just everything okay. Because the days of just doing everything competently, that's also over. People who did a bunch of stuff, but none of it really well. We had that era, like a Forrest Griffin or like Tito Ortiz. But those days are also over. You have to be like John Jones, good at everything. And a great example of that is Max Holloway. So let's go into the Max Holloway versus Brian Ortega fight. What were some of the things that you liked from that fight? One of the things I really liked about that fight was knowing that Holloway hasn't let that layoff affect him too much. His last title defense was sometime in 2017. And people weren't sure how he was going to come back because he had that first fight where he had to withdraw due to concussion-like symptoms. And then he couldn't fight Habib because of weight cut issues. And... People were talking about how, well, Holloway's title reign might already be over. Here's a guy, Ortega, who's coming in. He's on a finishing streak. And he was actually the favorite going into the Holloway fight. And one of the things that I thought was crazy is that if you take a closer look at the way Ortega has fought in his UFC career, he's one of those guys who he's undefeated in the UFC, but... He's not one of those guys that dominates from start to finish. He will lose certain parts of the fight. There's times when he looks sloppy and he gets caught, but then he finds a way to win. He's also a single style fighter. Correct. And one of the things I didn't like was the fact that when he fought Hinato Moicano, Moicano was able to light him up on the feet with just simple combinations. And because of Ortega's style of striking where he relies on that fiddly shell defense where he'll evade one punch or maybe two. And then he thinks, cool. And then he pops his head back up and then he'll get caught with the third strike. And one of the things, credit to Ortega, is he invests heavily in body work early, like he did with Moicano. And then Moicano shot in a sloppy takedown and he got guillotined. So I would have liked to see more of that. But Holloway did a good job of presenting his head on the platter. And he did that swagger style of extending his arms and kind of exaggerating that motion like come on are we gonna hit are we gonna fight or what 
and Ortega got drawn into that battle of, okay, I'm going to take your head off. And then he would remember, oh, I should hit the body. But by then, Holloway was already working the head and the body. And there was a moment in, I think, the first round when Ortega looked at the clock and said, wait, how much longer? And it was the first round. I was like, that's not a good sign. It's already working. You know, Max Holloway was dominant in this fight, but I'm still skeptical. <laughs> he might still have some health issues we don't know about. So maybe his title reign is over. I don't know. Not because he's not the best fighter at 145, but because there might be some kind of issue that we don't know about. But with that said, he did look amazing in this fight. The only reason I'm still skeptical was because even leading up to this fight, there were some interviews that he did where, look, Max Holloway is not the most eloquent speaker, but you watch some of these interviews and the one that got him pulled off the previous fight for concussion-like symptoms, he looked like he was drugged. And there were some interviews he did leading up to this fight where he still looked kind of out of it. That's the thing. If I had found out later that he got busted for some kind of recreational drug use, I'll be like, oh, okay. But they're testing the fuck out of him. So he, he's not on drugs and he's looking like that. So that still has me concerned for his future fights. But with that said, he looked completely fine for this fight. And as you mentioned about his title reign, you look at the top five featherweights right now in contention. Ortega was one, and Holloway just outclassed him. Number two is Aldo, who Holloway already beat twice in back-to-back fights. Three is Edgar, who lost to Ortega and Aldo, Aldo twice. And it's also one of those things where, okay, they were slated to fight before. I don't know if he can come back. Number four is Moicano, who ironically missed weight for this buildup. So for people who might not be aware, Hinato Moicano was on call as a backup fighter in case either guy gets injured or gets pulled from the fight. They would still have a title on the line. His only job was to make the championship weight so that way the event can go off without a hitch. And he gets paid, I think, 20, 30, 40,000. And he missed that. So I don't know if that's going to play a factor into future title implications where they say like, yeah, you had one job when you didn't really have to train for a fight per se, but you missed that. And number five is Chad Mendes, who's on a one fight win streak coming off two years from a banned substance use against Miles Jury. So if you look at that order, well, who really stands out as Holloway's next challenger? I don't know. But you you give Holloway 10 extra pounds and say, hey, you got to move up to lightweight. Things get interesting. So let's break this down. I noticed right away what was interesting with both Ortega and Holloway was that they were both stance switching. And Max is known to do that. But it was interesting to see Brian Ortega do that for this fight. So that must have been something that they had been game planning is there must be an advantage if they could also switch stances with Holloway. It didn't work out, but that was something that they had thought about and started implementing in this fight which Ortega hadn't done before. I think it also speaks to imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, where they say, hey, look at all these guys having success with switching stances. We should do it too. You think that's why they did it? What do you think was their strategic reason for implementing stance switching in this fight? It might be they thought he would have a better advantage when he switches stances for the takedown aspect. It could also be because they might have anticipated Holloway would expect Ortega to move just a certain direction and it throws him off when he himself does uh, stand switching. 
But I think it's honestly one of those things where they probably should have done this earlier and not just his fight camp, but in his training period. If you're going to go with stand switching, you have to drill it early and often. And it has to be an incremental improvement. Because when you saw Holloway doing the stand switching, he didn't do it in one fight. And all of a sudden, he did it over his the sixth or seventh fight in his win streak, I think against Bermuda is when he started doing showing shades of it. So it's one of those things where you can't just look at it and be like, oh, I should do that. It'll be like if fighters looked at Lomachenko where he stands in front of them and he moves his head just slightly in and out. I should do that too. It's like, you do realize he's had years and years and an Olympic record that is in the hundreds just for on the victory column to perfect this. I would actually say Max Holloway is the closest thing we have in MMA to Vasyl Lomachenko as far as style. It looks very similar the way they fight and how they stay within striking range, but are able to still keep themselves safe and then return fire. But to your point about Ortega trying to stand switch for this camp and this fight to give Max Holloway different looks, all it did was force Max Holloway to stand switch also because in his fights with Jose Aldo, Max didn't stand switch. He normally always does, but he kind of removed it from his fighting repertoire just for the Jose Aldo fight. But when Ortega started stand switching, Holloway was like, okay, I'll do that too. And it looked like Ortega was more confused by Max Holloway's stand switching than Max was by Brian Ortega. Because every time Brian switched stances, Max knew exactly what changed and then still beat him up. Whereas every time Max switched stances, Brian Ortega didn't understand which side was the danger side and would just get pummeled. It's like that old scene from Rush Hour 1 when Chris Tucker gets kicked in the face when he's being surrounded by the Chinese uh, triad. And he says, which one of y'all kicked me? So it's one of those things where when Ortega would switch stances, he did it naked. He did it out in the open just so Holloway could read that. Like, okay, you're not in the stance. Okay, I'll adjust. Whereas whenever Holloway would switch stances, he did it in the middle of an attack. So Ortega said like, I'm going to count. Oh, you're not there anymore. And then he got hit again. It's trying to beat somebody at a skill that they're better than you at. <laughs> yeah. it's, like, it's like I'm challenging you to basketball, but you're better at basketball than me. <laughs> yeah, it'll be like you saw, oh, I saw that fadeaway three that so-and-so did. I should just keep throwing threes. But if you don't understand and you don't have the shooting repertoire drilled into you, you're just going to airball the entire time. And Ortega was airballing a lot of his punches. He was just not hitting Max nearly at the same clip. I think Max was outstriking like by 4x or something. I think he has a record now for most significant strikes thrown, period. He surpassed Bisping. And I forgot who the third person is, but he's number one now. You know how the head is a very hard thing? But by the end of the fight, I was thinking that Max had hit him in the face so many times that if you guys didn't see it, his face was not only a mess, but it looked like pudding. Like people have hard features. And before this fight, Brian Ortega was a pretty guy, but not after this. It just looked like pie. And so after a (laughs) while, I wonder if Max Holloway just felt like, oh, I'm just hitting wet pie and it doesn't hurt my knuckles as bad. All the, all the hard parts I've already made brittle. And not only that, it's not helped by the fact that Ortega had trouble defending the body strikes of Holloway. Oh my God, those are brutal. Oh my God. Holloway did such a good job of disguising certain punches as, 
I'm gonna go for the head. Just kidding. I'm back down here. I'm gonna stay here for a while and work the body. No, I'm gonna go for the head. And Ortega just looked confused at certain points when he thought, oh wait, I thought he was striking me to the body because those punches were coming from the same angles and directions. So he had no idea if he should defend his body or his head. And by the time Holloway would hit him once on the head and he realized the hand wasn't going to come back up, he hit it again two or three more times. And by the time Ortega would raise his hand, he's like, oh, the body's open. The body's open again. It's like switching lanes when you're driving. You're like, oh, this is open. Now this is open. And he just kept going back and forth. Ortega looked like he had a clear plan, which was to counter-strike, work the body, and throw Holloway off with stance switches. But Max did all those things too, except better than him. So Max beat Ortega with Ortega's own game plan. He just executed way better. You could tell early on Ortega wanted to work the body. So Max started working the body even more. You saw Ortega stand switching. So Max started stand switching and not only fucking up Ortega, but confusing him. And then as far as counter-striking, Ortega wanted to counter-strike and Max would bait him to punch first by feigning. And then... Ortega would throw punches and then Max would counter that. I think it also speaks volumes like we were saying before about how fighters should treat themselves as the prize. And in that boxing model, Holloway stays in Hawaii and he has his camp around him and they're focused on his improvements. And you could see that with his team. I know early on he trained at Gracie Technics. I don't know if he's still there for his grappling. He's still there. It's one of those things where as far as striking, his striking coach looked just like Daniel Day Kim, I swear. Yeah, what's that guy's background? Because Max Holloway's striking is on another level. I think it might have just been one of those things where he focuses solely on Max Holloway. Like he's Max Holloway's striking coach. Like, who else have you done? It's like, what are you talking about? This is my only project. I'm on his payroll. He's just his personal striking coach. Yeah, but if that's what works, that's what works. Because then he's able to know the ins and outs of what Max does well, where he lacks. And he might be able to just study his opponents full time and just say, hey, this is what your upcoming opponent does well. So one of the things that really caught my eye was during the second Aldo fight. In the first fight, I think, and I could be confusing this, but Holloway went right to left the entire fight. So he went clockwise the first fight and then counterclockwise the second. So Aldo just looked confused like, wait. I was in there with him. He's moving the opposite direction I'm not used to. So it could be one of those things where he has a team that's focused purely on him. And that's what's able to get him to that point where he has that laser-like focus. He probably comes from the smallest of camps as far as UFC fighters are concerned. He has no celebrity trainers. Even Tony Ferguson can get in some big names because he's in L.A., He'll bring in Eddie Bravo. Maybe he'll work with Freddie Roach. He can get in some big names in there. Whereas Max Holloway has a team of no names. And he's training with just other people from the island who are just regular students. And he's still the fucking best at 145. But what's unique about this small team is that as far as camps go, they as a group have some of the highest fight IQ. Because whenever I hear them in the corner, not only... Max is talking about things he's seeing and asking them their opinions, but they also talk to Max about things they're seeing. Like they break down the fights in between the rounds better than any team I've ever seen before. And I think that's what makes them so interesting is they game plan, but also they change the game plan within the rounds, which I don't see as often with other camps or they don't do it nearly as well. So 
they're the most adaptive camp I've ever seen. And maybe it's because it's all centered around Max Holloway. They have high fight IQ just for Max Holloway. I think to your point, they expect the unexpected and they're comfortable with it. A lot of times you see other coaches in corners, they stick to the game plan, stick to the game plan. Oh, you're not losing. Um, you're not using what we talked about. Whereas Holloway's corner could be like, oh, hey, we expected this. This could have happened. So this is what we're going to do. And Max doesn't panic because he's not like, oh, this isn't going to my training. Oh, this isn't going according to plan. They're like, oh, okay. And he's able to call those shots. This is the benefit of being the biggest name of your camp. Sometimes it's good that you're the best guy and everything is about you. You don't need to be around with all these other people that you're always competing against to be the top dog. Max Holloway is a great example of that. He doesn't have to compete against anybody to be the top dog of his camp. He just is. Then everything centers around him. Yeah, I think more fighters should take this approach. I think we're both, we might disagree on certain things, like let's say Chris Weidman, for example, but we both agree that no, more fighters should follow the boxing model. Explain to the audience how we disagree with Chris Weidman. I think that he's one of those guys that have always been talented. And he, unfortunately, due to his, whether it's weight cut issues or him getting older, has not been able to keep up as the rounds go on. But he's still a great fighter. But you might think he was overrated from the start. Yeah, I think he was overhyped. I think he got the Anderson Silva rub where Anderson Silva was so dominant and good, and he was the first guy to beat him in Anderson Silva's UFC reign, that he took a lot of that glory and clout with him. So everybody expected this guy to be the next Anderson Silva, and he wasn't. So we disagree on that, but we both agree, no, more fighters should be the big fish in a small pond. Let's go back to some of the amazing work that Holloway did. Holloway perennially is so good at controlling the distance. He kept having Ortega overswinging where Ortega kept losing his balance. And also with the stance switching, I wonder if it's a bit of, I don't know who came up with that idea, but I wonder if it's a bit of the old school Gracie mentality of I'm going to win by doing something that they don't expect, like a secret move or a secret technique. I mean, much of the success of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in the early UFCs is nobody knew what any of these moves were and nobody had seen it before. So even though they were the most dominant traditional martial art, they still bought into that idea that I'm going to catch them or beat them by surprise. So I wonder if some of that bled into this prize fight where I'm going to beat him with a surprise. I'm going to go out there and start switching stances and it's going to fuck him up. But I don't know if that'll work with most fighters, actually. But definitely not somebody as adaptable as Max Holloway. To plan to win every fight by surprise, or you're not even sure how you're going to win the fight, I think those days are over. And the way Brian Ortega's been winning is kind of by surprise, meaning they didn't plan for that third round finish. I'm sure they wanted to finish it right away. It just happened that way. But <laughs> when you're fighting at the highest level, you need something a little bit more rock solid than a surprise ending. You can't just make a movie that's a piece of shit. And then at the end, it's like, surprise, look at this twist ending. Like that movie Southpaw, that terrible one with Jake Gyllenhaal, where it says in the last round, you gotta go Southpaw. It's like, what? So the whole fight he was just fighting orthodox, and it's like, you could have done this all along. You were just holding on to it. What the fuck? Well, remember that movie with Sylvester Stallone over the top? Where at the end he does that thumb technique, and that's how he wins. So, with that said, for 
the new generation of MMA, that type of old school idea of a secret move, a secret technique. Yeah, add that in as a trick. Add that in as part of it. But don't make that the centerpiece of your plan. Absolutely. I would also add in that if you're going to do something new, please tell me you've been working on it for at least at least 18 months because then you'll kind of see the results. So if you go into any type of, let's say, bodybuilding competition, you're not going to be able to do it in six months unless you start cheating massively and you're on steroids. It's one of those things. Or, where- no, even then you can't. Yeah. <laughs> they already have 12 years or 20 years of steroids ahead of you. That's true. So if you're going to surprise somebody with a new technique, please have it be something that you've been working on for so long. And you know this with Tyron Woodley. When he started off strictly as a wrestler, he had to add in explosive striking over time. And even then, he had to tweak it because he realized, I'm going to gasp if I keep doing this. So he had to walk that fine line between knowing when to explode and when to stay back and just wait for you to come in, when to shoot it on takedowns and when to just kind of no more or less to faint you and psych you out in order to trick you into thinking that he's going to be more active than he actually is. These things take time. So please don't just wait for camp to camp to improve on these things and work on tricks. You should be constantly improving in between fights and even during camps. Like the Christine Cyborg method of incremental improvements constantly year round. And the same thing Valentina does, always improving, not just for camp to camp, but just always. But there is one trick that Ortega has added that even paid off in this fight that he's been slowly adding. So he's gotten better and better at it. We know he's developed the Philly shell. What he's been adding over the years slowly is a nice kind of a down elbow from the Philly shell. He kind of uses his elbow to parry. That's what he was using it before, but now he uses it to parry. And when they get too close, hit them with a down elbow and he caught Holloway with that and he actually caught Frankie Edgar with that also and that's what led to the end he caught Holloway with it once and then Max wasn't falling for it again but with that he added a new trick he's never done before where he would go down and then he would do the up elbow from there like Anderson Silva used to do he kept missing it. He kept airballing it because everybody knew what he was doing, where he would step in with a down elbow and then try to get him with the up vertical elbow. And Max was so far away. But you saw that, oh, okay, you also added that for this camp. It's not paying off because you've never done it before and you've been recently developing it. But I see your thought process. I've added one kind of elbow. I'm going to unveil a new kind of elbow now off of that one elbow. I think he would have had more success if he started doing that earlier. And then he would trick Max into saying, if I'm in the stance, I might go for an Imanari role. Let's say he does it once or twice, failed. Because once Ortega would do an Imanari role and then he's on the ground, there's no way Max is going to follow him down for strikes and not get back up. So the risk would have been minimal. He would have been like, "Ah, whatever, like I get back up. Oh, you're not going to catch me. But he does that and then Max ducks lower just to defend or try to figure out. And then he could come up with that elbow. That might have worked. It's just like we talked about before, the principles of, well, I want you to bite into a feint and then I'll come in with an attack. But when Ortega just showed up to do it, Max is like, no, not again. I've seen this movie. Max learned so quickly. Talking about fight IQ, there was other times in the clinch where 
Ortega was going for a sloppy takedown, exposing his neck. I don't know if he was baiting him or not, but that guillotine was there. And one of the things about Max Holloway, he has one of the best guillotines in the 145-pound division. He's caught so many people with that. Either he's finished them or he made them bail on the takedown. There's a couple times Max thought about doing it against Ortega. And Max is crazy confident. But he had to almost convince himself, no, 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 no. I know I want to do this, but I got to let go. There was a couple of times you thought he was going to go for it. And then he had to have this mental dialogue with himself, like, don't do it. Because it looked like, even if you train Jiu-Jitsu, 99% there. But with Ortega, if you even give him 1% on the ground, he can rip that thing wide open and take full advantage of it. So I'm sure Ortega was hoping Max would go for the guillotine. And that shows Max's composure. Even though he adapts on the fly and he's confident, he's also not stupid. He believes in that guillotine, but he knows that would have been a stupid move to do against Brian Ortega. So he didn't do it. Just as it was a stupid move for Moicano to go for a takedown in a fight he was winning on the stand-up, but he did it against Ortega, right? Because he lost composure. He went right to his reflexes. Because in MMA, you're constantly drilling punches to takedown. So it wasn't like he decided to do it. It was just something that was habit. And he did it. And then he's like, why did I do a takedown? Because he never consciously decided to do a takedown. It just happened. And in this fight, Max's reflex was to go for a guillotine. And he had the ability in mid-transition to convince his mind not to go for that guillotine. He was able to stop his own habit. That was so impressive to me. It could have also been... When Max realized, you know what, you might have spent, let's say, a thousand hours drilling defense at the guillotine, but you maybe only spent a hundred in head movement. And I have a much better shot of letting it go and hitting you back in the head, which I've been able to do successfully this entire fight. And I, you mix it with body shots, and it's like, oh, this is a done deal. So I thought it was a legendary moment when, before the beat in the fourth round, when he turned to the announcing table, and he told Joe Rogan, I'm going to end it this round. And I thought, if he ends it this round, it reminded me of Frank Shamrock when he fought Phil Baroni, when he pointed to him and he did that nap motion like, you're going to sleep. And yeah. sure enough, he did in the second round. Max is one of those guys where he's able to fight consciously and unconsciously. What I mean is most fighters fight unconsciously. They're just fighting on habit. Whatever they've been drilling is what they do reflexively. Because in a fight, you have to do things so quickly, you don't have enough time to think about it. You have to do whatever has been drilled into you, whatever is your instinct, whatever is your reflex habit. Max is doing that. And also, he can override that sometimes and decide, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I've never seen somebody who could do that so well other than him and Mighty Mouse. So when he said this round, I'm going to finish him, he was consciously saying, okay, now I'm going to take over my reflexes and now I'm going to take it off of autopilot and I'm going to take manual control and I'm going to finish him this round. That puts him on another level of fight IQ. I'd say much like him and Mighty Mouse, it's almost like machine learning. They're waiting until you make enough mistakes and habits about, oh, I got this. That's it. Like AlphaGo will yeah. let you win a couple of moves and they're like, okay, no, I know your next move. I know what you're going to do. Exactly. All right. This is the done deal. So for you guys who don't understand how modern AI works and machine learning works, AlphaGo is a strategy-based AI that can beat you in basically any game. 
And what it does is it first throws away a couple matches where it's just learning you. And then after that, you will never beat it again. And you saw that with Max Holloway and Jose Aldo, where Max let Jose kind of take advantage of a few exchanges. And Jose was winning like the first half of the first round in both of their fights. And then Max, like AlphaGo, figured it out. And then he was like, okay, now I win every exchange from here on out. And he does. And he did. So that's machine learning in the fight game. They'll give away rounds because they know, okay, I'll lose a few just so I can mine for information. Like, where are you going with this? And we see it in businesses too. They're Companies like Amazon and Facebook are willing to lose money in cases because they want to know your habits and what you do and what you're more likely to do as your next move. That's why as consumers, we should always be paranoid about the data that companies collect from us. You know, watching this fight with my wife, she was asking, I always see Max beating everybody up, but I don't understand what he's doing to make him so good because he just looks like he's doing what everybody else is doing. He's punching, he's kicking. It doesn't look flashy. Why is he beating them up so bad? And I think that's what it looks like to a lot of people. They know that he's winning and beating them up. They don't understand how he's doing it because it doesn't look that weird. It doesn't look that obvious why he's so much better. Whereas somebody like Wonder Boy or Connor, because there's so much flash to it, you could see why he's beating them. It looks... Because the movements are so big and unusual. And Max moves a lot, but it's very small movements. And it comes down to fundamental boxing. I think Max is the best boxer at 145. He does classic punches and then drag steps. So instead of big hops like TJ Dillashaw does, he punches and drag steps, punches and drag steps. So he's always in a good position. He's never throwing his power hand and then knocking himself off balance or having to step forward. Because his foot is always there. And he also knows power comes from his rear leg. He sits down on his punches. And he doesn't just make power by just shifting from side to side. Like you'd see more in Muay Thai. But it all comes from the legs and the hips. So he's always putting himself in good position. And also little things like he slides and cuts angles. And he's always coming off of center. So it looks like they're facing each other. But actually Max has slid over to one side and he waits for his opponent to reset and that's when he punches you to the face because he's always kind of off to the side of you he's never right on the center line so even when it looks like a wild exchange you watch and max barely gets hit because his head is always offline he doesn't have to rely just like valentina on too much head movement or just blocking with high shield because he's not there like i said earlier He's like Vasil Lomachenko in that way. And he's also like the boxer Chocolito, where he just kind of drag steps and just circles around you and kind of spins you around and waits for you to turn to face him. And then he beats you up. And also because of that is why Max doesn't have to back up too much because he always has the superior angle on you. So he's within punching range. Yes, but you're not facing the right direction to punch him. And he's in the right position to punch you. To add to the Lomachenko comparison, one of the other things that Lomachenko always does to his opponents is get dominant angle. And he's not a high power striker, meaning he doesn't hit you with hard shots constantly. He hits you with enough that you get annoyed, you make mistakes, and those add up over time. Because you get hit with a couple, you're like, oh, this is what I was scared of? Oh, this is nothing. It lulls you into a false sense of security because if... 
Holloway was a power striker, like a Rumble Johnson, where he was just knocking people dead with just one or two strikes. People would be scared to even get hit with one or two of those. But you get hit with a couple of Max's punches. You think, I could take these. I could eat these all day. Like Ortega thought, like, I have a good hard head. He's not going to be able to hurt me. And even then, Holloway never dropped Ortega flush. It was more of an accumulation of punches when Ortega had no idea where he was afterwards. So Lomachenko also does that. When he stops you, it's a corner stoppage or it's to the body where you can't continue anymore. He's not knocking people's heads off. And Holloway does that where it's deceptive. You think, oh, this is fine, this is fine, until it's not. And actually, I think if it was somebody else who doesn't have an iron head like Ortega, I think they would have gotten dropped or and just knocked out. Max is like a hard puncher, but he's not the hardest puncher. It's like above average hard. But Ortega has Super Saiyan level iron head. <laughs> Except Max Holloway has Super Saiyan level striking. And that's what it looked like. Two different levels of strikers. And Max was on Super Saiyan and Ortega only had that advantage. His head was Super Saiyan. <laughs> Ortega looked a lot better in this fight than he really was. And he looks a lot better in all of his fights because of that iron head. Because if you have such a hard head that you're so damn hard to knock out, then you will have chances to also land because you won't be knocked out. So you'll be there getting punched to the head. You're not going down. So yes, you do get chances to return fire. And so because of that, the commentators or even in the fans' mind, it looks a lot more impressive. But it's really not because he has to get hit five times to land one. And if the other guy's chin isn't nearly as good as yours, yeah, he starts knocking people out, even though they landed a bazillion more punches than you. It's definitely a style of diminishing returns over time because it doesn't age well. And unless Ortega adds more feints, more defensive savvy, and even other wrinkles to his uh, grappling entries, he's going to suffer in the long run. Yeah, I had Ortega not only losing every round, and some rounds he was losing 10-8, in my opinion. I don't know what the official scorecards were, but I could give round three and four 10-8s. Oh yeah, that looked bad, because people were saying, oh, Ortega's coming back, he's roaring in, but it's also... He landed one good body shot or a good straight right, but you... He landed five punches. Yeah, it doesn't diminish the five or ten strikes that Holloway threw. You were just so used to seeing Holloway win that when Ortega did something, like, oh, what was that? Holloway was landing so many punches at such a high clip that you were almost like blind to Holloway's punches. Now, you weren't paying attention to any of the punches Holloway was throwing. You were, your eyes were only on... Ortega just waiting for him to throw something. So you only st- after a while, you only start counting <laughs> Brian Ortega's punches. If I had to do a comparison to, let's say, basketball, it'll be if one team is constantly just shooting twos. It's not fancy, but they're getting such a dominant lead. And then the opposing team does a slam dunk or a crazy three-pointer. Like, oh, it's like, yeah, but you're down 30 points. That two points or that three-point won't really change. It just looks cool. But not only that, I would say Max Holloway was landing the harder punches also. Like, Ortega would land, but it wasn't like it was rocking Max Holloway. It just made Max Holloway back up. I think the commentators overhyped those punches. But it's not like they were really like Rumble Johnson-style game-changer punches. He just landed, and they were stiff punches. Yes, 
but they weren't harder than the punches Max Holloway was landing. Max Holloway was landing much harder and more often. I think if you watch MMA and that's your background or your training in combat sports, you're so focused on looking at striking based on who got a knockdown or who got a knockout. But just because a person isn't getting knocked down doesn't mean they're not absorbing damage. And in fact, sometimes a person who never got knocked down might accumulate more damage than the person who did get knocked down. Like if this was a boxing fight, they would have thrown in the towel or the person would have just quit because I think there's a little bit less machismo in boxing. They know this is a sport and the fans will understand that, you know, this is just how it goes. You're getting your ass kicked. No, no worries to throw in the towel or quit. In MMA is completely different. A lot of the fans of MMA never watched boxing. So they're not used to that thing of corners throwing the towel. But the amount of damage that Brian Ortega was taking, man, if it was a boxing fight, you should throw in the towel. Round three, or especially in the middle of round four. And when he went to the corner, what it looked like to me was Henner didn't throw in the towel, but he was really thinking about it. And then he called the doctor over and told Ortega, listen to the doctor, listen to the doctor. So that way, Ortega doesn't have to quit. That way, Henner doesn't have to throw in the towel. But Henner knew pulling the doctor over and telling him to listen to the doctor was basically ending the fight because the doctor was going to say, you shouldn't fight anymore. Yeah, the doctor had no hesitation. He wasn't like, can you see out of this eye? How many fingers? He was like, no, we're done. But I hope eventually MMA, like boxing, gets civilized enough where corners don't feel so weird about throwing in the towel. Yeah, I don't think there's any shame in it. It's one of those things where, hey, we put together camp. We thought we had a winning strategy. It's obviously not going according to plan. What's the point of our fighter taking more damage in a fight that he can't come back? And you can't use the Derek Lewis examples of, well, look at Derek Lewis. He came back. It's like, yeah, but that's going to be way more rare than it is the norm. Derek Lewis, first of all, has never absorbed that many punches that Brian Ortega absorbed. And Brian Ortega also doesn't hit nearly as hard as the Black Beast. I think too much was made about Ortega's knockout of Frankie Edgar. So they kept thinking he has a puncher's chance when ultimately he's still a boxer jujitsu guy where his jujitsu is off the charts, but his boxing is getting a lot better. But I wouldn't call his boxing style like he's not a one punch knockout guy. He can outbox a lot of fighters, but I see him more as an accumulation fighter, kind of like Max Holloway, where he kind of beats you up throughout the fight like he did against uh, Tavares and then eventually knocks you out when you're really dead tired. Yeah, I really liked his work against Cub Swanson when he knew, well, I'm not going to be able to take Cub down with a double leg or a single leg. But if I'm able to trick him in the clinches, maybe shuck his head down and then I'm going to go for a snap down and what Tony Ferguson does, he would have a lot more success. So if he's able to add more wrinkles to his game of setting up grappling exchanges without relying simply on the double or single leg takedowns, he would have a lot more success. With that said, out of that same camp of Gracie HQ and Black House and the Gracie family, Chrome Gracie recently got signed to the UFC. And bringing back up what we discussed earlier about single style fighters, I wonder if Chrome Gracie is coming in 
at the wrong time, meaning too late. He probably has better ground game than Brian Ortega, but Brian Ortega probably still has better striking than Crone Gracie. I think it'll be interesting, and I think they'll probably have a lot of exciting, fun matchups for Chrome because purely because of his last name and purely because of his dad. But who knows? Chrome might decide after a couple fights in the UFC, just like in Japan, he might say, hey, I'm doing well, I retire. And then he just goes on the seminar circuit and he just teaches and he says, oh, I have four wins in the UFC, let's say hypothetically. He might not have to be a title contender or even a champion, but that might be enough for him to continually sell his product of Hicks and Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. This works. Here's why. Especially coming in as an unranked fighter, he'll be fighting other unranked fighters. That's when we'll see the highlight reel stuff. And that's how people move up the ranks so quickly. Single style fighters move up quickly because when you're fighting other unranked people, you're just creating this highlight reel for why you should get closer to the title shot. But if they came in kind of like Max, where he wasn't a single style fighter, so he was trading wins and losses for a while in the unranked territory, you get a slower build and he had to earn his way to the title shot. So I feel like if those single style fighters had to do the same thing where they had to stick around the top 10 for a lot longer before they got to the title shot, they would actually get exposed a lot earlier because Instead of fighting two guys who are in the top 10 and then getting a title shot, they would have to fight five. <laughs> and then they would start losing. So it'll be exciting to see what he's able to do in the UFC. But we'll have to pay more attention to that. And when you're watching UFCs, pay attention to that. That idea of, is this really the end of the single style fighter? Or is there still more runway? Or will they start making a comeback? Try to guess where MMA is going. And that makes watching MMA a lot more fun. With that said, goodbye. Later.